You're listening to a podcast from Riverview Church in Bowness, recorded during one of our Sunday gatherings. For more information about Riverview Church, or service times, or contact details, go to riverviewchurch.uk or find us on Facebook at Riverview Bowness. Morning, everybody. How are we doing? Good to see you. So, I know loads of kids, half the congregation's gone because they're all, all the kids. Isn't that great? Br- brilliant. Tom's away as well. So, just as we were, just before I start, I just, as we were praying this morning before the service, I had a little picture. And I don't know if any of you guys watch, girl, guys and girls, watch uh, MasterChef. Anybody watch MasterChef? MasterChef. I love MasterChef. I love MasterChef, the professionals. And the picture I had this morning was about sauce. Okay? It's a bit, bit weird, but. Basically, when these guys and guys and girls, guys means everybody, okay? Guys and girls come up and they present their meals to the judges. They look amazing. But there's sometimes where they pour the sauce over and the sauce looks amazing too. But they taste it and there's this devastating moment where they just go, this is a great meal, but your sauce is weak. Sauce is watery. And you can just see it, they just you know, they fall apart inside because they've done so much work and then they've covered it with this, this kind of rubbish sauce. And I felt like God was saying to us this morning that as we invest in the word, as we invest in him, he wants to thicken the sauce, make it full of body and seasoned. So as we come to maturity, we're a full-bodied, thick, lovely, luscious sauce. So it's not this watery, devastating kind of rubbish sauce. It's something thick and amazing. So as we come together, this is interactive. You know, you're, you're engaging with me and we're investing together in the word. And he wants to bring us to maturity and mature our minds and our hearts in his word. So that was by the by, Master Chef. Anyway, I don't know about any of you guys. This preaches about perspective, really. When I was younger, I felt that I had a struggle with perspective on how I looked at God in the Old Testament and God in the New Testament. And maybe some of you are in that place, maybe not, but we're going to talk about his character today. I knew that I loved Jesus and that I, you know, I really was in love with Jesus, but I just kind of wanted to ignore God of the Old Testament. I, I struggled with it so much. I believed it, but Jesus just seemed so amazing. Uh, and God in the Old Testament, I just felt like he seemed a bit grumpy. And uh, yeah, I just couldn't really reconcile these two things. So I had this acceptance of it, but, but I wasn't quite there in how they joined together. I like to say maybe that's you, but to this morning I just want to sh- sort of display and talk about how these two scenes or revelations kind of overlap. So the passage we're going to look at today is Old Testament. Yeah, we're going way back, so you can read it all, but some of it's going to come up on your screen in a minute. I, I wouldn't try and read through the context, but I do because there's quite a lot. But basically the verse is this. It's Exodus 34, 6. And I'm just going to read a short passage of it now and then we'll, we'll get to it after. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And this bit of scripture is the most quoted passage by the rest of the biblical authors. They refer back to it constantly. It's just, they just keep giving nods to it. You'll notice it through your Bibles as you go because they just keep referring back to this verse and it's because it's incredibly significant it's incredibly significant to the Israelites historically and in what's just happened 
It's super important because if you're an Israelite or a Jew, you know that they've just been saved from Egypt and they've broken the covenant and almost immediately they've sinned. But instead of destroying them, God relents and he perseveres with them as his chosen people, even though they behave absolutely terribly. And it's an incredibly important verse because it displays God's grace. And it comes at a time in the story that displays God's incredible grace about 1,200 years before Jesus appeared. So it's already woven into the Bible. This is really early in the Old Testament. So the point that I really want to make today and what I really want you to take away today is that we see the attributes of God described in Exodus in Jesus and vice versa because they're one. We can't throw out the Old Testament. We can't sideline the God of the Old Testament as different from Jesus because they are one and God is never changing. We sang it in the first song, he's never changing. The Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit are all part of what is happening at Sinai. This description that God gives of his character is about all of them. So this is going to take a little minute, but we're going to work through a little bit of context to bring us into Exodus 34. So maybe some of you have read it. I hope you've read it. If you've not read it, you can read it after this. Go through the whole lot. So here we are, Exodus from chapter 22 onwards. God shows the glory to his people. They've just come out of Egypt. They've got to this mountain and God shows his glory to them. His awesome power in fire, in thick smoke, in thunder, in lightning. And it's pretty scary. I mean, Moses says, he writes that he trembled. The people are afraid. They don't want to approach because of this immenseness that's happening on this mountain. It feels like there's a a healthy reverence and fear or awe of God in this moment. And we've got to remember that God saved them out of Egypt. He's just saved them. So this is kind of like a meet and greet for them. They're not, you know, they don't really know him yet. They've been saved and they come to this mountain and this is like the how do you do sort of moment. So they're like, wow, what is happening here? So then we get into chapter 24. Moses has passed on to them all the words of God that how they should act if they want to be in a relationship with him. And God's saying, I've saved you and I want to be linked with you. And if they want to be a special chosen people and receive the promises that he's laying down, then this is what they're going to have to do. It's an invitation from God for what they'll have to do if they want to be his chosen people. And the Israelites, if you've read this, you'll know what do they say? They're afraid, but what do they say? Everything the Lord has said, we will do. That's quite a big statement. And it reminds me a little bit of, uh, you know when you're a teenager and you're watching TV, you're sitting there watching TV, you're really focused, and generally probably be my mum would come in and say, right, I'm off to the shop, but when I get back, I need you to tidy your room and do the dishes, okay? And you would say, everything you have said, you wouldn't take your eyes off, but you'd say, everything you have said, I will do. Yeah. <laughs> and she would leave, you know. And you just know it's not going to happen. And as a reader here, as you, you've read through, you know what's going to happen. You know that this statement, it's, it's not going to happen, but you say it. And the law for us, it can feel quite confusing because of the words that we use in our culture, in our time to try and understand it. It can feel quite restrictive, but I think that we need to think about it a bit differently. Because this is God, the creator, the holy, holy, holy one who's pure and right and just and good. And he wants to partner with these people and he wants them to represent him to the land that he's going he's to give them. 
So he sets out a few things that he needs them to do for this to work. And I think it's similar to what I just said about my mum asking me to tidy up or something. Because your parents, they've provided for you and they've provided all this and they love you unconditionally. But what they're saying is for us to live together peacefully and in harmony, for you to enjoy all the things I want to give to you and provide for you, I'd like you to do some things in response. And hopefully you start to do it out of respect and not out of thinking that you're going to get kicked out. But one thing that's been highlighted here in my mind as I've read through this is that they weren't saved by the law. He'd already saved them out of Egypt. He's already done that. He's already saved them. And now he's saying, if we're going to be together, there's some things that I need you to do or I I can't be around you. We can't be attached like this and you can't represent me. But as we know, this doesn't go well. They've said that they're going to do everything. And then at the end of chapter 24, the leaders of Israel, they've gone up on the mountain and they've seen God, well, at least they've seen his feet. And, uh, and Moses is headed up into the cloud of his glory and he's gone for 40 days and 40 nights, which is quite a long time. So the covenant's been made and essentially they've got married. God and the people have made a choice for each other. They've made vows, they've got married. And God starts to give Moses the instructions on how to build this really cool tent that he's going to come and live in amongst the people. And the next eight chapters is all about all this awesome tent stuff. He likes, likes tents. So then we get into chapter 32. And this is where it starts to turn and everything starts to go a bit wrong. So it starts with them saying to Aaron, the people say this to Aaron, we think Moses is toast. He's taking ages. Come on, you make a gods for us. Now that's my translation. That's not NIV, so... You won't find it there. But yeah, they think he's gone. They don't know what's happened to him. They're just like, right, Aaron, you can make gods for us. And we know what happened. You know, Aaron says, oh, I threw things in the fire and an idol came out. But he made it. He did it. And all this starts unfolding in the chapter. They make an idol. They start worshipping it. And they start reveling and partying and having an orgy or whatever's going on. Joshua and Moses, when they're coming back down the mountain, they think there's a battle in the camp because of what's going on. That's the sound of it. And this is right after they've made the covenant. They've, they break the commands of the covenant. And the idolatry leads to wickedness. And it's basically like they got married and now they've cheated on, on their spouse on the wedding night. That's how it would have felt. Or even worse than that, they've cheated at the altar. That's what this is the equivalent to. They've made vows and they've immediately broken them. And God gets angry. You know, he's had enough. He's had enough of these folk. He's been trying to show himself to them. He's made a covenant with them and it's literally in pieces at this point. So he says he's going to let his anger destroy them. I mean, this is pretty hefty stuff back here. And basically, I think what's happening here is that he's saying that he's so holy, he just can't be around sin. And he's not going to hold back his anger against it. He's just going to let it happen. He can't be around it and it's going to to be burned up by his very presence. Because he's holy and they're just being awful and they've broken the covenant and there's just no way that they're going to be able to partner with him. He can see it and he knows what's going to happen. But Moses pleads with him not to and he pleads with God not to. He intercedes and he doesn't really know the full extent of what's going on and he heads down the mountain and then Moses, he sees what's going on and he ends up getting really angry and him and the Levites end up killing loads of people and it's, it's, it's really awful. Like it's a really awful part of the story. So you'll have to read it, like I say, but it's not, it's not a nice part of the story. And God's just nearly had enough of them. 
and he calls them a stiff-necked people and he doesn't want to go anywhere with them in case he gets angry. He's basically trying to keep his distance, isn't he? He's like, right, I know that I, I'm not going to be able to put up with you because I'm just going to burn you. I'm just going to step back a bit. But again, it's Moses who intercedes. Moses persuades him to stay involved and keep being present with them. And so God relents and he tries again and God displays his glory to Moses and he passes him by. And this, this is when we realize that he has compassion on this people, even though they're incredibly sinful. That's his grace. They don't deserve it, but he's gracious towards them. And that's why this story is so important. That's why to the biblical authors, to the Israelite historians, that's why this is so important, because they see that they didn't deserve it. Their ancestors didn't deserve it. And he started there with his grace and his compassion. I think if we read this correctly, we start to see the forgiven nature and character of God right there. And the reason that I've gone through all that is to bring us here to understand what's just happened and the grace that God displays. And that brings us into chapter 34. It's a long time, like I said, go and check it out after. And just before I read this passage fully, I just want to uh, say that this is 3,200 years ago, roughly, and it's way, way before Apple projects, uh, Apple products and iPads and iPhones and stuff. And yet Moses, he's in the cloud, downloading stuff from the cloud with a tablet. <laughs> Anyway, tech savvy. So, so let's get into this. Verse, uh, chapter 34. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Sorry if this is a different translation. I might have made a mistake there. Be ready in the morning and then come up on, the mountain, uh, come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out the two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hand. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, and in Hebrew this is where it says Yahweh, Yahweh. It doesn't say the Lord, it says Yahweh. It's the unpronounceable name of God. Rabbis won't pronounce it to you. People don't know how to pronounce it, but it's written Yahweh, Yahweh in lettering. So I'll read it like that. He proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground and at once worshipped. Lord, he said, if I have found favour in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you before all your people. I will do wonders never done before in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is this work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you to do. And then he goes on to say that he'll drive out the others from the land ahead of them. So part of the reason that I want to look at this passage is that I feel that the problem of how we perceive God in the Old Testament is how we read passages like this. 
is how we start. In the past, as I said, the parts that stuck out to me were the parts about wrath and anger and punishment and wickedness. And it all just sounded so like angry and grumpy. And, and it just seemed like God was really touchy. I don't know if you found that, but that certainly was my experience. But it doesn't actually account for what's happening in the story and the context of the story as we get here. And it doesn't account for his positive aspects of his character if you just see those things as you read it that you dislike. So we've got to remember that Yahweh, he's just been cheated on at the altar. He's just made those vows with the people and they've just basically cheated on him. And yet as Moses intercedes like a priest, he asks for forgiveness and he repents on behalf of the people. And God says he's willing to carry on. Even though this has just happened, even though he knows what's gonna happen in the future, he's willing to carry on and he relents. And I feel like we can be blind to the most important parts of this passage. He is compassionate. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in loyal love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And it's easy to read these other parts that we find hard or or harsh, and we struggle to see that these things he says actually far outweigh the others and what's happening if we read it in the right context. He's holy, he's just, he can't be around sin. His very presence is gonna burn it up, and he's righteous, and he can't let the wickedness go unpunished and when we think about society with that point we think about law and order and we think about what goes on in, in our world we want wrongdoing to be punished don't we we want things to be taken we want crimes to be punished but when we think about when we do something wrong then we might be more willing for the judge to be more lenient so everybody wants a judge but nobody wants to be judged And he says he will let the wickedness of generations that don't repent play out on subsequent generations. What he's saying is that what's sown in wickedness, if people don't repent, is going to be played out and it's going to grow up in the next generations. But he is willing to forgive. To forgive wickedness, rebellion and sin. That's why he's specific. A gracious God Here we start to see the description of God who wants to provide a way of grace for all. This is where we start to see it, right back in Exodus. We start to see his character, the same character that's going to provide the way of the cross and the truth of the gospel. It's the same character that will give himself as a way of salvation from all wickedness, rebellion and sin, ultimately in Jesus. And the whole Old Testament is a series of types that show how people and you know the Israelites just don't live up to the mark everyone's a failure at some stage and everyone requires compassion and grace that's what the whole thing's about the whole of Israel's story is like this and it shows that all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God I think Tom shared about this the other week that even Abraham who's known for his faith he's famous for his faith yet he tried to fulfill the promise himself but God has grace Moses, who's the hero in this part of the story, he performs the priestly act of interceding at this moment for the people and asks forgiveness on their behalf. He's the hero in this moment. He was a murderer. When God called him, he didn't have the faith 
to do what God was calling him to do. He had to call Aaron or get Aaron to do it. He didn't believe that God could use him. And Aaron was like the second choice. God was like, oh, I'll have to use this chap. But Moses was meant to be the priest. He was meant to be interceding for the people. But he had to get Aaron to do it because of his lack of faith. David, as we all know, is described as a man after God's heart and an adulterer and a murderer. Everyone who's held up in some way as holy in the Old Testament is also held up by their own sin and requires grace. So what do these stories reveal as we read through the Old Testament? And similarly, we see it, the same pattern with the disciples, Peter's denials. The pattern consistently reveals the characteristics of God's nature. He is gracious, he is compassionate, he is loving, but he's also a just God and he can't let wickedness go unpunished. And someone will have to pay the ultimate price for sin. This isn't just the description of Yahweh's character that carries through, it's also the promise that we see fulfilled in Jesus. He's not a new and different character to the descriptions of Yahweh that we read in Exodus. Jesus is the revelation of these attributes of God incarnate, as we've spoken about this morning, born as a human being, incomprehensibly made man. In his life and in his ministry and through his death and resurrection, he forgives wickedness and rebellion and sin, having compassion on the whole world and not just on a chosen people. He is abounding in love, even to death on a cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So we see these attributes in action and there's a link with the same God of Exodus. Jesus is one and the same God who delivered Israel and made a covenant with them. He himself becomes the blessing to the whole world. So let's just have a quick look at these, breakdown of these words. I'll have a little look at them all individually. I'm going to pronounce them all wrong for you so, in Hebrew. So. And just in case you're interested, if you want to know more about this or learn more about it, check out Bible Project videos because I certainly did for this. They're amazing. Podcasts are amazing. Please use that resource. It's amazing. The first word that he uses, that Yahweh uses to describe himself is rakum which again, I said wrong. I've probably not got the throat thing right. And it means compassionate. And it's related to this word in Hebrew for womb. That means there's a tenderness, there's emotion. It's emotional and it means deeply moved. But it's also a doing word. It means deeply moved, but then you do something about that. You're moved to action by compassion. That's what rakum is. And we see this in Jesus. How many times do we read about his compassion for people and for situations? He's compassionate. He's got a caring, tender heart towards them. And what does he do? He acts in that moment. And he heals and he saves. And ultimately, we see it in Jesus in his willingness to go to the cross, in his compassion. He has compassion for all mankind and all of us sinners who could never be righteous in our own merit. Jesus is the compassion of God personified. The second one I want to look at is Hanun, which means gracious. And it's related to this shorter word called Chen, Chen, 
which is grace or favor. And it's the word that Moses uses after that paragraph. Moses says, if I found chen in your eyes, Lord, if I found favor in your eyes, it means delightful or favorable. It describes a gift of favor, precious, a precious gift, desirable, something desirable. It's a description of grace. And God displays this all the way through the Bible. It's a gift that people don't deserve, continued favor, continued giving. And it's not just a gift that's offered. It's part of the description of his character of givingness. He's, he's gracious. He loves to bestow favor on people. And it's not just his own people. As we see this in Ruth chapter 2, we see that where she, she doesn't, well, sorry, she realizes that she has found favor in Boaz's eyes. And she doesn't deserve it. She knows. This story is a picture of grace. Ruth wasn't an Israelite. She wasn't part of the chosen people. And yet she's grafted in and she becomes part of Jesus' genealogy. Grace, a gift. And ultimately, again, we see this in the person of Jesus. He is God's generous, gracious gift to us to receive forgiveness and eternal life. And it's undeserved. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Ephesians 2.4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Undeserved favor. And the, th- the third one I want to look at is slow to anger. And again, with this bit, we can be quite quick to focus on the anger part of that statement and not the great big slow to part of that statement. And this in uh, in Hebrew is erek apayam, which literally means long of nose, which is quite funny. Um, And in this ancient Hebrew culture, basically to describe somebody as angry, you were saying that their nose burned hot. Your nose burns hot means you're an angry person. And if you've got a long nose, it means that it takes a long time for the end of your nose to get hot. So you're patient. So God has got a long nose. He's long of nose. And I'll tell you what, if you want to know how long your nose is, you should have a toddler around your house for a while. Because my nose has been burning very hot lately. Lord, give me a longer nose. So God's slow to get angry. But he does get angry. He gets angry against injustice. He's patient, but he gets angry. And wouldn't we want him to? Don't you want God to get angry about injustice? How would you feel if he was just completely impartial to all the evil that we see in the world? You know how you feel when you see things on TV. You know how you get angered by it rightly. How much more so when you see something happening to innocence? or violations that you just think are detestable. How much more so do you think God feels about this? How this angers him, this evil that's, that's in our world and this sin? He's holy. How much more patience does he have to have all the time not to burn up everything we've made in our selfishness? It's everywhere. Yet he's patient and he keeps giving chances for people to turn to him and to receive his grace. And even though our actions and our thoughts must anger him so much in his righteousness, he's got grace. Again, ultimately, we see this in Jesus' sacrifice that he took 
the anger and wrath that God has for sin and evil. He took the punishment of destruction that we deserved. He took it upon himself at the cross. Jesus is God. And God takes his own punishment upon himself as one of the Trinity. It's sobering, this. That rage that you feel against injustice, against innocence. Imagine how God feels about that. Just imagine how he feels about it. Off the back of your own emotions about it. And Jesus took that upon himself. It's truly, it's not imaginable that that's what he endured on the cross to overcome evil once and for all. This is what he went through for you. It's not just something flippant we talk about. He took this upon himself. It's justice at a cosmic level. This is dealing with evil in the spiritual realms. He conquered death and Satan and he bore the wrath of God for us. That is Jesus, our Savior. And the fourth one that we want to come to now is loyal love. It's pronounced chesed. It's quite difficult to translate, apparently. And it, basically, it's th- kind of three words in one. Love, generosity, and commitment. All kind of in one word, chesed. It means promise-keeping loyalty motivated by personal care. And that's the Bible Project's translation. I think it's a really good one. Promise-keeping loyalty motivated by personal care. It sounds a lot like what he calls us to in marriage. Consistent commitment of love, generosity and loyalty and personal care. That's what he's saying here. That's part of his character. Psalm 136 repeats God's chesed is forever and it repeats it over and over and over. It's an example of a description of the word. It's continual commitment. And again, we see this in Jesus. He's the epitome of God's loyal love, of his chesed. Firstly, he's the promise of the commitment to the Israelites and to the promise that through them, the whole world is going to be blessed. He himself came to show and display this chesed, loyal love in his person. And secondly, from what he actually did when he was here, we can see that it's so clear and evident in who he seeks out, the lost, the unfavorable, the detested. He loves the unlovable. And once again in the cross, the abounding commitment of loyal love forever. God is love. And his love goes on forever. The fifth attribute is faithfulness. Emet. And this means truth, reliable, trustworthy. God's faithful, he's just, he's upright, and he's consistent. You can trust him. And I want to back this up with Deuteronomy 7, 9. It says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. You can trust him. He is faithful. He's reliable. Romans 15, 8 to 9 says, For I tell you the truth, that, so, sorry, not the truth, but it is the truth. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promise made to the patriarchs 
might be confirmed and moreover that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. He's saying this is the fulfillment of the promise that was made to the patriarchs. God is reliable and trustworthy and faithful. And we see this in Jesus. Where was he born? To who? To which people? God had every right after everything that went on with the Israelites to use another nation to bless the world. The reason he doesn't is because he's made a promise. And that's why Jesus comes to the Jews first. The revolution starts there and goes out to the world. Secondly, Jesus claimed to be the truth itself, the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth. He is trustworthy. And he invites us to trust him. He is faithful. And if after all that, you're still a bit hung up on allowing how he allows the wickedness of parents to play out on the subsequent three generations. This is what I mean about reading it right, where we start and what we read into it. If you're still hung up on that, think about that line from Deuteronomy. It should be making you think now. It says, for those that love him and keep his commandments, he has loyal love for a thousand generations. That part of Exodus 34 is, he's, is where he says he's just. That if they continue in wickedness, he's going to allow it to be reaped by the subsequent generations. But as Deuteronomy says, if you repent and you stay in a relationship with him, he will keep a thousand generations in his loyal love. That's a good promise. And we know that he's faithful. These qualities of his character that we've read about, they stretch out across the whole Bible. And they tie together the old and the new. I hope you're keeping up with what I'm trying to say here is that they're not different. They might be different people as in, in part of the Trinity, but that God was there at Sinai, Jesus was there at Sinai. They display how the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. You can't throw that stuff out and think I'll just have this new bit. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As Tom read earlier, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. These attributes of God that, we've, that have been described here, they point to Jesus. Yeah. And the same attributes that we see in Jesus point to Yahweh in Exodus. Jesus was there at Sinai. And we see the redemptive work of God alive from all the way back there right through to Matthew. That despite all the failings and all the rebellions and the wickedness, God still has grace. And his grace extends beyond what we can imagine. And it doesn't mean that there are not going to be things that we struggle with in the Old Testament or that are difficult. But I think that we should start from a place of believing that this is God's character. And we should read with that as our baseline. These are his attributes. If we believe and we remember these things about God before we start reading, then we might see, read things with a slightly different perspective. And we can't, as I said, believe that these are the attributes of Jesus without realizing that they're the attributes of Yahweh. That Jesus is one with the God of the Old Testament and he is never changing. He started displaying his incredible grace a long, long time ago and he's continued ever since band want to come up again that'd be great this is the first Sunday in Advent and we come to this time we start to think about what we're about to celebrate 
and just set aside all the bells and whistles for a minute. It's all around us already, but just set it aside. What we celebrate is that Jesus set aside his majesty in heaven to come as a baby born of a virgin to redeem the world and to give us a way of redemption. And his very name means salvation. This baby was born 2,000 years ago. He embodied the same qualities and attributes that we read of the God of God in Exodus. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And he wants us to have a personal relationship with him. He's not just the baby Jesus in the nativity scene. He's the God-man, he's God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us. The same God of Exodus who was in the cloud and the thunder and the lightning, he came to die and rise again for our, for our sins, to take my sin and to take your sin and the wrath of God against the wickedness of the whole world upon himself. So that if we repent and we call on his name, then we can know him and we can be saved by this amazing, never-ending, boundless grace and have eternal life with him. If you don't know anything about that, but you're interested, please come and speak to me after. I'd love to pray with you. Just remember this as you go out and you continue to read through and delve into the scriptures as he continues to thicken and season the sauce, so to speak, that I spoke about earlier, that he is compassionate, that he is gracious, that he's slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. God bless you guys.